Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're heading back to the 3rd of July, 1850. That was the day that marked the start of the railways in Australia and marked the start of one of the worst and costliest mistakes in our history. 170 years ago today, at Cleveland Paddocks in Redfern, Sydney came to a standstill for the turning of the first sod in the construction of the railway from the city to Parramatta. The honour of turning the sod fell to the woman newspapers then referred to as the Honourable Mrs Keith Stewart. This was her married name. She got the job because she'd been born Mary Caroline Fitzroy and was the 26-year-old daughter of Governor Sir Charles Fitzroy. Mary had assumed the role of First Lady of the Colony of New South Wales, which then comprised all of Australia's East Coast because of famously tragic circumstances. On the 7th of December 1847, Mary's mother, Lady Fitzroy, had been in a carriage that was being driven by Sir Charles along the tree-lined driveway of the Government House grounds in Parramatta. The horses bolted, the Governor lost control, the carriage overturned and his wife was dashed against the ground and killed. So two and a half years later, it was Mary who was on official duty on the 3rd of July, which was a very cold, very grey and very rainy day. Hearing that she simply turned a bit of sod with a spade in a wet Sydney paddock, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was probably a quick and underwhelming ceremony. But this was one of the biggest events Sydney had ever seen. The day was declared a public holiday, and despite the hideous weather, as many as 10,000 people turned up, which was then about one in four of the city's white population. And in terms of spectacle, they got value for getting soaked to the bone. A who's who of colonial power was in attendance, all in full uniform, and there were plenty of colourful flags and bunting. A few minutes after midday, the 11th Regiment marched into view as their band played. Members of organisations such as the Ancient Order of Foresters and the Independent Order of Oddfellows also marched about in full regalia and their bands played more tunes. While all of this had the trappings of a government function, it was actually in support of the private Sydney Railway and Tramway Company. This outfit had won the right to build Australia's first railway, which would also be the first railway in the Southern Hemisphere. As Governor Fitzroy's carriage approached, that 10,000-strong crowd erupted in cheers and shouts. His Excellency and Daughter Mary were received by company directors, colonial officials and army officers. With rain pelting down, all of these bigwigs formed a procession and entered the enclosure where the ceremonial sod was to be shoveled and turned. There, company engineer Francis Shields presented Mary with the spade as company president Charles Cowper stood to the side with the wheelbarrow. The spade and barrow weren't just any old tools. Mr Shields had personally designed them and had them manufactured from locally sourced materials. The spade's handle was satin wood, engraved with the arms of New South Wales and inlaid with a circular plate of silver on which was inscribed the colonial motto. 
The shaft was tulip wood, meeting the blade at a circlet carved with the image of a sheep. The blade was steel manufactured from the newish Fitzroy mine, named for the governor, and it bore his family coat of arms and an engraving of a steam engine that had been adopted as the arms of the railway company. Exhaustingly, the spade had been further inscribed with the day and date and the particulars of the event. Meanwhile, the wheelbarrow is pretty fancy too, made of highly polished colonial wood and also bearing an inscribed plaque. Mary took the spade and said, quote, I feel much honoured and gratified at having been requested to commence a work of such importance to the colony and which I earnestly hope, under the blessing of divine providence, may be brought to a successful issue. Mary then put foot to spade, raised the sod and turned it into the wheelbarrow. The Freeman's Journal reported, quote, at this moment, the cheers and shouts might have been heard at a mile's distance. No sooner was the turf deposited in the barrow than Mr. Charles Cowper took it, wheeled it some few yards and cast it out. There was another succession of cheers. Speeches were made and then 500 or so VIPs had a splendid luncheon under a huge marquee. Having turned such a simple action into such a huge spectacle, maybe these colonial powers deserved their feed. Certainly Mary had done her bit admirably. But if the gents present had paid as much attention to actually designing, financing and building the railway, Australia would, for the past 170 years or so, have been a very different place. For starters, the Sydney Railway and Tramway Company was seriously undercapitalised, and all of this spectacle had actually been a PR stunt to drum up more much-needed money. While the sod had been turned, it'd be almost another year before their first contractor actually started work, and then, soon after, he walked off the job. The railway was also to be beset by another huge problem, not that it was the fault of the directors of the company, and that was the discovery of gold at Bathurst, which led to inflated labour costs and siphoned off workers. Things got so bad that in August 1853, the New South Wales government had to bring 500 railway workers from England just to make up the numbers. Worse than all of that, though, was the question of gauge, that is, how wide the railway should be. Initially, at the urging of the colonial secretary, Earl Grey, Governor Fitzroy and Charles Cowper had decided to adopt the British and American gauge of 4 foot 8.5 inches. If you'll pardon the pun, the colony of South Australia and the new colony of Victoria fell into line. Then, in 1852, company engineer Francis Shields, he of the spade and barrow design, changed his mind and convinced Governor Fitzroy and his boss Charles Cowper that the Irish gauge of 5 feet 3 inches was superior. The other colonies said, OK, fine, we'll go with that too. But when Francis Shields was replaced by another engineer, James Wallace, this new man insisted in 1853 that the company go back to the original plan of a 4 foot 8.5 inch gauge. By then, Victoria and South Australia were fed up. Colonial rivalry came into play and they also said they'd already ordered rolling stock to fit the 5 feet 3 inch gauge. Bottom line, Victoria and South Australia refused to change back. Later on, Queensland and Western Australia would go for an even narrower gauge of 3 feet 6 inches because it was more cost-effective over their vast distances. It wasn't until 1853 in New South Wales, three years after the first sod was turned, that real work was finally getting underway under a new contractor with that new injection of workers from England. 
While in concept it was the Sydney to Parramatta Railway, it actually only went from Redfern to Granville, a distance of about 14 miles, and there was also a branch line out to the wharves at Darling Harbour. It sounds quite modest, but it was a huge job, requiring workers to clear bush, move three quarters of a million cubic yards of dirt and rocks, build 27 bridges and 50 culverts, dig one tunnel at Chippendale, and build a viaduct over Long Cove Creek. The company also had to build six stations and pay for and import four steam engines. The budget in 1853 was £218,420, and over the next two years, this blew out to almost double, a whopping £431,000, and that required the New South Wales government to step in and take a progressively larger and larger stake in the company until they owned it outright. Embarrassingly for New South Wales, progress on the railway was so slow that it was beaten in the railway race by arch-rival Victoria. The Melbourne to Port Melbourne steam train line, which hadn't been started until 1853, opened in September 1854. It'd be another 12 months after that before the first railway in New South Wales was opened, and that was more than five years after Mary had turned that first sod. The Redfern to Granville Railway was opened on the 26th of September 1855. It was also declared a public holiday, and it was also another gloomy and rainy day. The first official train comprised two first-class, four second-class and five third-class carriages. The Governor-General, Sir William Denison, was in the first carriage and there was a wild rush for seats in the others, with people even climbing through windows. The train was due to leave the single iron roof station building at Redfern at 11am, and it'll come as no surprise to Sydney commuters that it ran 20 minutes late. But it did, as the Sydney Morning Herald noted, leave the station, quote, absolutely without any accident whatever. The train made the journey in 45 minutes through driving rain, having stopped at the four intermediate platforms at Newtown, Ashfield, Burwood and Homebush. After that first service, more people loaded up at Granville to go to Redfern and people rode the rails for the rest of the afternoon. On that first day of commuting, some 3,500 tickets were sold across first, second and third class, which was a pretty good result given the white population by then was about 50,000. For nearly three decades, the New South Wales rail system did expand, as did those in other colonies, and the gauge differences didn't pose a problem until June 1883, when New South Wales and Victoria were connected at Albury. Now the problem that Governor Fitzroy and the railway company Bigwigs had created 30 years earlier was felt as all passengers and freight had to be transferred from one train to another. Even so, this wasn't a huge issue because this was a border crossing between colonies and people and goods had to be unloaded anyway for immigration and inspection. But the break of gauge became a huge headache after Federation because it impeded cost-effective cargo transport, particularly for goods like coal that were unwieldy to unload and reload. Such cargoes had to go by coastal freighter, which took far longer and could be dangerous in the days when shipwrecks were still common. And for rail passengers, the break of gauge was an irritation that added unnecessary hours to every interstate journey. During the wars, this was felt keenly, particularly in World War II, with Japanese submarines stalking the coastline. At that time, there were 13 break of gauges in New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland and Western Australia, requiring thousands of soldiers and civilians to unload and reload millions of tonnes of urgently needed supplies. 
From 1883 onwards, despite the best efforts of hundreds of inventors, there was no mechanical solution to the break of gauge problem. The only way to solve it was the massively expensive process of ripping up hundreds and hundreds of miles of rail and converting it to the standard 4 feet 8.5 inches. It wasn't until 1962, nearly 80 years after New South Wales and Victoria's railways had met, that an unbroken train journey could be made from Sydney to Melbourne. Even now, 170 years to the day after the first sod was turned, we're still working on converting major regional rail networks. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia On This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.